Today's reading is Exodus 6, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Gabe Coyle, uh, for those of you who are new. Welcome again to Christ Community's downtown campus. And I want to start with an assumption, and I know it's bad to assume, and I know all the, the, the fancy adage about what it means to assume and who you are if you assume. I get it, okay? But hang with me. Let's assume you're a huge fan of a celebrity like Justin Timberlake, okay? Which isn't hard. The guy can sing, he can dance, he can act, he can do almost anything. And you know his personal history. You know, oh, how many times he was on the Mickey Mouse Club. You know his favorite hair gel. And when NSYNC went bye, bye, bye in the music industry, they broke your heart, right? But you've kept your resolve that one day you will name one of your children Timber. Okay, so let's say you know everything about Justin Timberlake. Would you say you know him? Would you say you know him? Of course not, right? Of course not, because we know that knowing someone is more messy than just knowing their personal history. It's more complex than just following their tweets, right? And we get glimpses of this in our everyday life. We see this, for example, when your boss, whom you thought you knew, calls you into her office and scolds you for doing the exact thing you thought she wanted you to do. We see this when a friend from college, whom we thought we knew, stops returning our phone calls. Maybe for some of you, or you know friends whom they thought they knew their spouse, and then they come home crying, and their spouse whom they thought they knew says, I don't know if I can do this anymore. You see, it's hard to know anyone, really. And mainly that's because we are who we are. We're the kind of people 
who run and hide behind our insecurities and our fears. And we have a brokenness all the way down to the core of who we are that shows up in our wounds and our wants that creates a division even between us and the people we rub our shoulders with every day. It's so hard to know anyone. I want to say or really pose a question, what if there's something even more audacious? What about knowing God? Not knowing about God. I mean, we can find facts about God. And we actually, the past couple weeks, have talked about how God knows us and knows even our pain very intimately. But what about you and me knowing God? Knowing God. Is that even possible? Good question. Good question. The answer that we actually see shouted from every page of Scripture, echoed in every sunrise that comes up like clockwork in nature, is the resounding yes. And because God is who God is, we're going to see in our story this morning that God will do almost anything to be known. God will do almost anything to be known. Now, we're in a summer rhythm, as most people are here in Kansas City. So if you've been traveling or been on vacation, let me bring you up to speed on where we've been the past two weeks. We entered into this story for the first time two weeks ago in the book of Exodus in ancient Egypt, roughly 1400 BC. And we find a whole nation of people, the people of God, Israel, under brutal slavery of, at that time, the nation of Egypt. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson has wisely said, there is properly no history, only biography. And when we recount the story of the biblical storyline, we actually find the same to be true. For one baby's cry stands out among the rest. And his name is Moses. His name is Moses. You see, by God's care and through his mother's thoughtful planning, When all these other babies are being drowned in the Nile because of the edict of the Pharaoh, Moses' mother concocts a plan. And she places her son in a little makeshift raft and puts him in the reeds of the Nile. Of all people to find him, who finds him? Takes him into her home, raises him as her own. Pharaoh's daughter. The daughter of the one who said all of these Israelite male Babies should be drowned in the Nile. Fast forward 40 years, nothing's changed. Except the ray of hope we thought we had in Moses had just turned out to be a mirage. Our hopeful deliverer, Moses, is nothing more than an outcast because he kills an Egyptian in a fit of rage and living life on the run finds himself hundreds of miles outside of Egypt. But we read in our story That God sees, God hears, God hasn't forgotten, God knows. Fast forward another 40 years, and we find an 80-year-old Moses, not necessarily the Charleston Heston, you know, that we're used to, um, not ripped, maybe hinged over, right? 80 years old. And in the midst of the desert, tending his flocks, God shows up in a bush on fire, but not being consumed. And it's here. It's in this moment that God reveals himself after decades of obscurity from Moses. God says, I've heard the cries of my people for deliverance. I've known about their pain, but now is the time for the God who knows to be known. And there will be blood. 
And it's going to be a spectacle of which the world has never seen. Now, when we enter our story this morning, we're going to cover quite a bit of text, about seven chapters, and that's a lot. And so here's the deal. We're going to focus in on a theme, a theme that we rarely bring to mind when we come to this story, but so crucial to what God is doing here. God speaks to Moses and through Moses to his people. In the passage that was just read for us, we read in Exodus 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Some 11 times between chapter 6 and chapter 14, God tells the Egyptians, he tells the Israelites that everything he's about to do is in order to let them know who, they, who he is. He's the Lord, Yahweh. Remember, if you can, from last week where we talked about and went into greater detail, this name means I am who I am, the ever-present God. And God will do almost anything to be known. Well, after chapter 6, verse 7, I want to just read the other 10 passages very quickly for us just to let this explicit desire of God to be known, made known to us. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand. Chapter 7, verse 16. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. I will strike the water in the Nile. Chapter 8, verse 10. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, verse 22. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Chapter 9, verse 14. I will send all my plagues on you. Pharaoh, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Chapter 10, verse 2, I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians, that you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 7, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Chapter 14, verse 4, I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 18. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Why? Why is, so, why is God so zealous to be known? Because he loves us. Wait, what? <laughs> that sounds egotistical, doesn't it? I mean, come on. But in reality, we have to understand we have been desired or designed and wired to know and to be known, to have a loving and intimate relationship with our Creator God. We see this all the way from the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2, where God says, and He creates us for Himself, and He's walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. And what we come to find is that life without knowing God isn't even really living. St. Augustine has maybe said it best hundreds of years ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. God so desperately wants to give us what we want underneath all those surface wants, what we need underneath all those surface needs, which is to know and to be known by him. And God is so desperate. He will do almost anything to be known, almost anything, known for who he really is. And so I want to pose this question to each and every one of us this morning before we enter this story. Do you want to know 
Do you really want to know him? Do you want to really know him? Not the him you want him to be, who he really is. We can't do that in any other relationship. I can't just walk up here to Charlie and then define who he is. I need to know who Charlie is. We need to know who God is for who he is, how he's revealed himself. Not that he's domesticated in our 21st century cultural sensibilities to which our grandparents look forward and mock. Our grandchildren will look back and mock. We are such situated human beings. Let us not be so arrogant. Do you really want to know him? What he loves, how he loves, even if it challenges our culture, what he hates, how he acts. Do you want to really know him? Because hear this, how you answer that question will impact how God relates to you. This is truth. You see, like a good parent, like a good father, will parent his children differently based upon their personalities, so God relates to his creatures differently, although the same goal presides. God will do almost anything to be known. And what we see in this well-known story of the plagues that have made great cinema for years, (laughs) starting off to the hardened, God will make himself known through judgment. To the hardened, those who push God away, who say, God, I'm doing just fine right now. I don't need you in my life. To the hardened, God will make himself known through judgment. And it's for our good. Now, returning to our story, we finally see all these conversations in the desert of Midian have led Moses and his brother Aaron to the palace of Pharaoh. I want you to imagine that with me for a second. You come to the courtyard of Pharaoh, escorted by armed guards, and the breeze from the Nile blows the gold-laced curtains as you come down the courtyard. On the walls, you see the hieroglyphics of Egypt, how they have defeated time and time again their numerous enemies. And when you finally make it to the throne room of Pharaoh, you see, what do you see around his throne? But the paraphernalia of Egypt's numerous gods. You see, Pharaoh in ancient Egypt wasn't a mere mortal. He was God Horus, the God Horus in the flesh. He sat on the divine tribunal over the whole world. And he was the mediator, the representative, and the defender of Ma'at. Ma'at was the social, political, economic, and spiritual order that the gods themselves had supposedly revealed. You see, Oftentimes in our culture, we separate religion, we separate economics, we separate relationships. But in the ancient world, they had a better perspective than we do. They actually saw them as all intertwined because they are. They were actually smarter than us now. (laughs) We often say, oh, if they would have just got it, they're smarter than us. Let's not be so chronologically snobbish, okay? Um, Here's the deal. In that moment, Pharaoh's words were the very voice of the gods. And if you were to confront and challenge Pharaoh's words, it not only meant you could lose your life, but it meant your eternal destiny. So, Pharaoh, with all of his power, all of his glory, and what do we see but two guys in their 80s coming, coming gray, wind-worn before Pharaoh, and they say almost with this audacious boldness, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. 
This had to have looked like a joke to Pharaoh, but he wasn't laughing. If anything, he had this probably this defiant smirk on his face where he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know. There's our key phrase. I do not know the Lord and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And the well-known historic standoff begins. And God hears his challenge. And he will make himself known in such a way to Pharaoh and the rest of the world that they will not soon forget. You see, whenever God sends a plague in this story, he brings upheaval to the social order just a little bit further. He makes a mockery of ma'at, the way that the gods had revealed order should be, the way that this order from ma'at crushed Israel under brutal slavery. Those gods saw Israelites nothing as slaves. This God sees every human being as having dignity. There's a major change there. And with each plague, God not only challenges Pharaoh and makes a mockery of him and Ma'at, but also brings and mocks every one of the the gods in ancient Egypt, Egyptian um, mythology. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God explicitly says, On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord, not them, not multiple gods. You know, it's at the critical core of the Israelite faith, the Shema in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Not numerous that you have to appease and consistently live in fear, but one who is sovereign, who is the one true God, and he is revealing his character every step along the way here in the plagues. And it all starts to pick up, if you will. And God really starts to do this upfront and very national show when we get back to the Nile. You see, the Nile was the lifeline of Egypt, the agricultural source of fertility, and it still is in Egypt today. The spirit god in Egyptian mythology of Hapi, I never know if I'm saying that correctly, uh, of Hapi, she would bless the land and the people with offspring and flourishing. And so we find Pharaoh here in our first scene bathing in the Nile, probably ritually bathing. He had water up in his palace but probably ritually bathing as a sign of commitment and appeasement of Hapi. And who, does come, who comes along but Aaron and Moses? And they say, because you won't let Israel go, hear the word of the Lord. This is what God says. I am the Lord, and you will know I am the Lord. How? I will strike the Nile, and it will turn to blood And the fish will die, and Egypt will reek of death. The death that has reached my nostrils of my people for centuries. And so Aaron strikes the Nile, and it becomes, like God said, a deep, red, thick, coagulating blood with fish bloated coming to the surface. Now, we always jump right to Pharaoh's response, but I want you to think about this. There happens to be, maybe, an Israelite woman in her 80s. 
She remembers the Pharaoh's edict over 80 years ago to drown the babies of the Israelites in the Nile. The pain, the chaos, the turmoil, maybe even one of her own siblings. She watched the life snuffed out in the Nile, crying out, God, do you even see this? And when she sees the Nile running with blood, she sees those babies crying out for justice and saying, a God who knows is making himself known and he will not sit idly by with wickedness that is destroying people. Now, Pharaoh, what does he do? Well, he will have nothing of it. His magicians, we actually come to see in chapter 7, verse 23, are able to do something similar with their secret arts. Just to be clear, we're not alone. The evil one is prowling to deceive and to whisper lies and to bring about deception and so to bring about destruction. And Pharaoh was a very, very stubborn man. His heart was carved out of knotted oak. And so what does he do once the magicians show him just enough to satisfy his skepticism? He turns his back, goes back into his chambers and he doesn't give the Nile another thought. He could have stopped everything then and there. No one would have had to lose their life. No one. But he couldn't let Israel go. They're too much of an economic engine, right? He wouldn't let Israel go. And what we'll come to find is that his heart is so hard, it takes a saw as sharp as death to cut through his arrogance. I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, to be clear, Pharaoh's stubbornness doesn't take God by surprise. It wasn't like, oh, the Nile didn't work. Okay, plan B. On to frogs, okay? No, God knows what's going on every step of the way. He plans on it. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And listen to what God tells Moses before all this goes down in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Somehow God is more engaged in our lives than we care to admit than our cultural sensibilities care to admit. And somehow we're more free than we want to admit and take responsibility for. And in that mystery, God does his work. God will do almost anything to be known. But there's more. God does lots more. He brings more frogs, more gnats. And these aren't the things you suck in when you're going out for a jog. Think of something that stings and bites. Mosquitoes crawling under your covers, biting you in the night. You know, like, ooh. It, there's more swarms, a mixture of insects like ticks, uh, beetles, spiders. <laughs> then he strikes the livestock. He strikes the people with boils from the head to the toe. He brings hail that strikes down the crops and strikes down anyone, beast or human, who do not heed the warning of God. Then he sends locusts to clean out the rest of the fields. And then lastly, he lent, second to last, he sends darkness. Utter darkness for three whole days. So dark you can't see your hand in front of your face. Darkness. 
sitting there, the text says, in their homes, unable to go out because it's so dark. Itchy and pain because of boils, smelling the stench of dead animals and frogs and everything around you, starving because your food supply has continually been cut lower and lower. I don't know about you, but I would be in a corner somewhere sucking my thumb, okay? I would not do well with this. It probably would have happened with the mosquitoes, okay? I'm not good with this stuff. Now, but here's the deal. Before we get into the most intense plague, the one that will really chafe us weird, um, a question that usually percolates when we're going through this story is how do we reconcile a loving God who brings such audacious judgment upon Egypt? I mean, sure, the Egyptians were kind of rough folks, okay? They killed some people and slaves. But but seriously, how how does God justify killing their firstborn of their livestock and their sons? No matter how bad they are, what gives? Think about it from the perspective of the Israelites. Hundreds of years of oppression. Under the brutal slavery, they watched their wives and their daughters be raped before them. They watched their sons murdered. What do you think they're crying out? Hallelujah! (laughs) Hallelujah! Finally, somebody saw wickedness and did something about it. People will stop dying. Finally, God, you've heard us. We won't forever be trounced and treated as cattle. Finally, oftentimes we have qualms with God's judgment because we don't really know injustice. Those cries come from the safety of a suburban home who doesn't know pain, who doesn't know what it means to lose your son at the sword. When people's arms are being cut off because they won't join a Rwandan resilience. You know, I mean, these, these are the pains and realities that people deal with. This is where justice is needed. And God gives Egypt every chance to repent time and time and time again. Pharaoh sees more of God's presence and power than we could ever imagine. And what happens with him? He grows in his resolve. He digs his heels in even deeper. And some of you may be there this morning. It has little to do with your wits or evidence. You're smart folks. It has everything to do with your will. You have a stubborn and hard heart because you're so focused on self-reliance or self-indulgence, you can't hear anything outside of that hard shell. Hear me this morning. God will be known in your life one day. And to the hardened, God will make himself known through judgment. It gives me no joy to say these words, but they need to be said. So what about you? How hard is your heart? You see, in the Western world, in our cultural lens, we tend to think of the heart as kind of the seat of the emotions. When in reality, the heart is the control center of the whole human person. Once again, in our 21st century, we've put our emphasis on the mind, but there's actually something much deeper going on than just the mind. Once again, the ancients were smarter than we are today. It's often, as we just sang earlier this morning, open the eyes of my heart, come to the very center of who I am, or the old evangelical cry to let, invite Jesus into your heart. It's not a cutesy saying, it's actually rich with theology. The very control center of who you are, invite God to take the reins. 
And when we come to this, of course, we don't want to talk about the heart, but the heart, what the heart wants, the mind finds reasonable and the will finds doable. I'm going to say that again. What the heart wants, the mind finds reasonable and the will finds doable. And sure, we may not be as bad as Pharaoh, Hitler, or Stalin, or someone on Jerry Springer, right? We love those shows because it makes us feel good. (laughs) At least I'm not as bad as them. And then if we're not as bad as them, we think we're okay. And we believe the fairy tale that there is such a thing that exists called harmless sin. You see, sin is kind of like swimming at a closed beach. It's hot. You're sweaty. You've got every justification in the book as to why it's a good thing to jump in the water. And so you go for a swim. And what seems like minutes... You look up and you're far from shore. The current has taken you out further than you ever wanted to go. So then you start to swim back and you realize the current is too strong, which is why the beach was closed in the first place. The sign was there to protect you. And as you're swimming, lactic acid fills your muscles. Your bones begin to ache. You're breathing, gasping for air, crying out for someone, but no one's there because it's a closed beach. And hear me. Ultimately, judgment comes upon us not because we can't hold on to God's rescuing arms when we're drowning. Judgment comes upon us because we won't let him grab us. In our arrogance and in our pride and our self-sufficiency, we push him out and we say, I can still swim back to shore. I'm fine. I'm smarter. I'm smart enough. I got the skills. I don't need your help, God. And as one theologian has so wisely said, we have this incessant prying of God's fingers from our recalcitrant hearts. And slowly, we get drawn in by sin until we can't free ourselves. And we drown in our own cycles of destruction. I want you to think about this because we see this in everyday life. Think about the leaders who have very public falling out, whether because of sex or finances or an abuse of power. If you read their biographies, if you watch their interviews on news, what's one thing they always say? I don't know how I ended up here. It started so small, so easy, so simple. I never wanted to be this kind of person. I never wanted to be this addicted. I never wanted to be this destructive. And here I am. And that's the subtlety of sin, alluring us with pleasure, paralyzing us with comfort until our hearts are so hard we won't listen to anyone around us. How hard is your heart? Where have you grown comfortable with sin and destruction and brokenness in your life? We've all got those areas in which God is speaking to us, let go, and instead we turn our backs in defiance and we walk away. You're headed to your own destruction. Look up before it's too late. You want to know some key phrases that are surefire signs that your heart is being hearted? Oh, God will forgive me of that anyway. You know, with everything else going on, God can't expect me to deal with this. I mean, it's so little compared to everything else. Really, this? And that's where we see sin doing its most destructive and subtle work. We've all got those places in our lives. And hear this, Pharaoh, even from time and again, would repent. 
When the plagues got rough, he would say, okay, God, you were right. I'm sorry, I'll let the people go. And then things get comfortable again. There's a respite from the plagues. And as soon as life gets comfortable, he falls right back into his own cycles and patterns of destruction. That's a surefire sign of a hard heart. Someone's so set in their ways that not even God can come down to rescue them because he pushes off their hands. And God will respect our decision. How hard is your heart? Now, praise God that Pharaoh isn't the only one that God's making himself known to, right? Otherwise, this would be a really drag of a sermon, wouldn't it? Uh, Praise God that God's also revealing himself to Israel and actually to everyone else looking on. You see, Israel, from the start, as we heard read this morning, they didn't want anything to do with Moses or God either. They'd been so beaten down from life, they weren't sure they could really trust Yahweh. But it's not how you start, it's how you end. And they become so desperate that they follow Moses and they follow Yahweh. And to the desperate, God makes himself known through mercy. To the desperate, God makes himself known through mercy. I want you to put yourself in their sandals for just a minute, okay? They've seen all that God has been doing to this whole nation of Egypt. Actually, a majority of the plagues never touched the Israelites. They've been in Goshen, a particular section of Egypt in which the plagues were not touched. God made a distinction between Israel and Egypt to show that he's the one who's in control here, not Pharaoh or some angry gods out there. And they hear about the worst plague that's to come. Remember, they're not following along in their Bibles. They're living this. And they hear the plague is that every firstborn, both of livestock and their male children, will be killed. No one's immune. From the throne of Pharaoh to the dungeons of the prisons, Israelites as well as Egyptians, all are guilty. But there is one way of escape for the desperate, for the humble who are willing to try it. And God wants to make his mercy known to those who are desperate enough to trust him. And I want you to think about these instructions, hearing them for the first time. Moses tells the people what God has told him and says, I want you to have some dinner tonight, and the main dish is going to be lamb. Okay, we do that. That's, that sounds pretty tasty. I'm excited. I like where this is going. Now, when you slaughter the lamb, get all the blood in a dish. Wait, what? <laughs> now, take that blood, and I want you to paint your doorposts with it and let it coagulate. Oh, what is going on? Now I want you to wear all of your clothes and pack up all of your bags and keep your shoes on and eat your dinner so fast as if you're about to run out the door. Then when the destroyer comes, comes to take the life of the firstborn of both livestock and male children, he will see the blood on the doorposts and know that that family, that individual knows me well enough to know I will do what I said I will do. And I will pass over that place. And that family, that firstborn will be spared. God doesn't pull Israel for their questions. He doesn't say, hey, do you guys got an idea that makes a little better sense out there? He says, you either obey and trust and know me and your son will be spared or you ignore me and your son will die. Period. 
But still, that's kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> Look, I buy my meat, like most of you, uh, from the grocery, and it's butchered somewhere else. The only time I see blood is when I order my steak medium rare. Mm. You know, like, that's, that's good. Any other context, I almost pass out. I can't stand blood. So what's going on here? What's God doing? God will do almost anything to be known. And blood is a sign of judgment. You see, Genesis 3 We see the first couple rebels against God and we've been living in this same cycle where we think that God is keeping something from us, that he's going to turn from us at the drop of a dime, that he's going to turn his back on us and all of his good actions towards us are actually driven by manipulated motives. And so each and every one of us has turned our backs on God and we try to live life our own way. All of us have committed treason against our creator God. And the result and the punishment for treason is death. And the payment is blood. Every one of us in here is complicit in the way the world is. Every single one of us, either aware or unaware, has contributed to injustice and brokenness, whether breaking a relationship with a family member, ignoring the homeless, caring little for everyone else and just wanting our needs met, going behind our friends' backs and gossip. Name it. The list goes on. We're all complicit. We all deserve God's just judgment. Just like Egypt, but just like Israel, that doesn't have to be our story. God longs to make his mercy known to us. And like a lamb that was slaughtered and the blood placed on the doorpost. That was never meant to be the end of the story. It was always meant to be an arrow pointing forward to when God would put on flesh and die on a cross, as John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, when he sees Jesus Christ, the God-man, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He dies the death we deserve to die. He takes our penalty upon himself. You see, only the desperate and the humble will receive that kind of way. Only the desperate, when there's no other way out, will ever hear that as good news. I mean, letting blood coagulate on your doorposts, if that's not desperate, I don't know what is. Trusting a crucified Savior and Lord who three days later rose again, you don't get more desperate than that. Everyone here who's a follower of Christ admits that they're desperate. And so I want to ask you this morning, how desperate are you? How desperate are you? Desperate enough to no longer see Jesus as just a really nice guy who set a good example that happened to accidentally die? Or God become flesh who dies in our place and through his shed blood actually cares for the sin of the world for all who trust in him as their substitute. No longer blood on the doorpost, but blood on the cross that we might be forgiven and God might be both just and the justifier. Jesus didn't come just to meddle with a couple vices that you find annoying in your own life. He came to bring transformation of your whole life in the areas you thought were off limits. Jesus, he didn't come to give the self-sufficient a better sense of self-worth. He came to free slaves, to give life to the dead. And that sort of decision, that decision, it requires you trust him with everything. 
So here's one practical next step that we can all walk away with this morning. It's very simple, but not simplistic. As if God will do almost anything to be known, known by you, then pursue knowing Him. If God will do almost anything to be known by you, then pursue knowing God. I don't care how old you are. I don't care where you're at in your faith journey, how messed up you feel like your life is, how busy you feel like your life is. Pursue knowing Him. And so that we have appropriate expectations, theologian J.I. Packer wisely says, knowing God is of necessity a more complex business than knowing a fellow man. Just as knowing my neighbor is a more complex business than knowing a house or a book or a language. The more complex the object, the more complex is the knowing of it. And so we pursue knowing God and the ways he's called us to meet him through the spiritual disciplines. We seek to talk with him, to listen to him, and to engage with his people. In prayer, we actually echo back who God is and how he has revealed himself when we praise him for his good name. In the church community, we experience him as the hands and feet who carry out his will and his presence is uniquely felt with his people. And in scripture, we listen to him. We listen to him. In his timeless word, he still can speak timely into our lives as he's revealed how he's worked in history and how he's promised to work in the future and in our lives individually and corporately. Pursue knowing Him. And the only way, and I end with this, the only way we'll ever really know Him. See, the spiritual disciplines can't be a start. The only way we'll really know God for who He is is by knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the whole Old Testament has this narrative tension where God is just and He will punish and He will bring judgment of wickedness that is destroying people, but He's merciful And so that he now forgives and brings grace. And the Old Testament has this narrative tension that is unresolved until God puts flesh on and dies on a cross. Because then he is both just and the justifier. Adequately punishing sin without destroying us who are complicit in that unjust injustice. As one scholar has said, Jesus can heal the nations because he's not only the judge He himself bore the judgment. On the cross, Jesus' own body was shattered like a china doll as he bore the fracturing power of sin. With outstretched arms on the cross, Jesus receives the nation's judgment and simultaneously receives the nation's in mercy. Jesus grabs hold of sin's destructive power that has divided humanity, carries it with him into the grave, and buries it there. Three days later, to rise again and to offer mercy. Are you pursuing him? Are you desperate enough to know him for who he really is? Are you fine with life the way it is right now? Thank you very much. God will be known. And God will do almost anything to be known. And you have two options. The shocking desperation of the cross or the subtle death of sin. And you have one choice. And let us be clear That is an all-or-nothing decision. That's a terrifying thought, mainly because we still believe there is something in our lives, in our hearts, that is more valuable, that will bring us that ultimate satisfaction more than knowing God. 
It's terrifying because those things are put at risk. What if I don't have those? What if those are now asked to be surrendered when in reality knowing God is the greatest treasure that lasts into eternity, knowing Him. And choosing Him means placing yourself under the sacrifice of Jesus who has become our substitute, paid our debt, and in Him we find a way of escape from God's just judgment. How do we choose that? It's the way for the desperate. What can the desperate do but just cry out? Surrendering and embracing God in the way he calls us to begins with a prayer, a cry, an admittance that we deserve God's judgment. He is just, we are unjust, we are broken, and that Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection has paid our penalty in full. And we come and we say, thank you. Here's my life. And so begins knowing God. So begins knowing God. You have a choice. Choose wisely. Choose Him today. Let's pray. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. And what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, and so we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Lord Jesus Christ, please have mercy upon us and forgive us. Oh, that we might delight in your will that is for our good. Oh, that we might walk in your ways that is for our flourishing, and to bring glory to your name that others might know the joy of knowing you. Lord, have mercy. Amen.